leadership, the goal to simplify big ideas for greater impact in everyday people like you and me. Well, welcome to episode number 16 of our podcast. My name is Skylar Elmer. I am your host, and I hope that this conversation today will give you the encouragement you need to make a greater impact in your life. Uh, it's the end of the world. Well, kind of. That will all make sense a, a little bit more today. There is a lot of stuff floating around predicting when the end of the world will take place, what are the signs associated with it, and when exactly that's all going to take place. And and one of the places that people consult the most in the Bible kind of to decipher these details is in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. And today it is my greatest honor to interview Tremper Longman, who is a world-renowned Hebrew scholar. Tremper is a sought-after person when it comes to translating the Bible, and he has translated um, the uh, New Living Translation. He's one of the key translators for that. Uh, but he's also written numerous commentaries and books in articles helping people understand the Bible better. He has also um, somebody who has immersed himself in Old Testament studies, specifically books like Daniel and Revelation. And today, Tremper is breaking down one of the most widely looked at and sadly misinterpreted passages in the Old Testament about end time stuff. It's found in Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27, which if you uh, have a Bible, I would encourage you to grab it and follow along as he unpacks this for us today. So enough with the name introduction. Here's my conversation with Tremper. Well, it is a great honor for me to be able to interview uh, Dr. Tremper Longman. Tremper, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Skylar. It's great to be with you too. Um, Well, Tremper, um, I I feel like I should say everybody who is listening to this should know who you are. Um, you You have made quite a contribution um, especially when it comes to Old Testament studies. Um, but for those who may not know who you are, could you just share a little bit about who you are, what do you do, and what is your, I guess, experience with a book like Daniel? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, so, um, you know, I'm, I, I, when I was uh, in high school, I became a Christian, and this is way back in like 1970, the fall of 19, uh, spring of 1970. And... Um, I got really excited about the Bible and really excited about the faith. Still am, still am. But, um, you know, there was, it was during the Jesus revolution. A lot of people were becoming Christians, but there weren't a lot of resources out there like there are today. And so when I had questions that I was approached with or rose in my mind, there weren't as many good resources out there as there are today. So uh, God, uh, moved me in a direction of going into kind of an academic ministry. So I went off to Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, where I studied under some wonderful teachers, particularly a man named Ray Dillard, who uh, later became my colleague, but uh, he encouraged me to go on and get a doctorate. So I went off to Yale to do a doctorate in, in ancient Near Eastern studies. And then Ray hired me back at Westminster, where I taught for 18 years and and then decided to move on where I moved to Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California, a wonderful, wonderful Christian liberal arts college. And I taught there for 19 years, which was about two and a half years ago, I retired, uh, not because I'm that 
well, I am that old. I'm 67 <laughs> now. I was 65 when I retired, but that's considered a little early in academics these days. But all our kids and grandkids were on the East Coast. So my wife and I decided uh, to move back East, Alexandria, Virginia. And, uh, and I still write a lot and I lecture a lot and teach courses. I just finished teaching a course by Zoom. It was supposed to be live, of course, uh, for Regent College in Vancouver last week on the Book of Revelation, which is my present writing project in a series called the New Testament through Old Testament Eyes. So that brings me to Daniel, <laughs> yeah. which is, um, you know, I've, I've written a lot over the past uh, since I think my first book came out in 1987 and I've written over 30 bucks and uh, mostly uh, almost all in the Old Testament though sometimes I write with my psychologist friend Dan Allender a uh, series of books uh, that are based in the Old Testament but also deal with contemporary issues like marriage and so forth but um, uh, but if there is a focus I have it's probably wisdom literature but um, but in the 90s, I was asked to write a commentary on Daniel for the NIVAC series. And I had done some work on what's called apocalyptic literature before that. So that's another major interest of mine. Uh, uh, so I wrote a commentary that came out around 97 on Daniel. And then I wrote a little book in my How to Read series on Daniel that came out last month. And, uh, but it's because of my interest in Daniel that I was asked to write a commentary on Revelation in a series called The New Testament Through Old Testament Eyes. So that's a little bit about me. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And, and for those who don't know, um, you know, we've been studying through the book of Daniel as, uh, as a church, and I have been using your <laughs> commentaries um, quite extensively, and they've been very, very helpful for me kind of digging in and understanding it. Um, and I didn't even realize this um, until I was in California, but I was, um, we were north of you probably, I don't know, an hour and a half um, when you were in Santa Barbara at, at uh, Westmont. So that was yeah. fun. A beautiful, yeah. you know, beautiful, beautiful. area. Ooh, so Very beautiful. Hard to leave. It was hard to leave. Uh, not yeah. just because it was beautiful, but we have a lot of friends out there. But I have six granddaughters on the East Coast, so they beckoned. Yeah, yeah family wins every time. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, well, Trumper, okay, before we get into the meat of uh, the passage that we are going to talk about today, um, you had a very unique experience that not many people can say they've had, nor would many people want to have <laughs> this kind of experience. But you went head-to-head -head, uh, with a guy named Harold Camping, uh, who was like, um, this end times, you know, air quote, guru um, of the day. And if I'm not mistaken, you guys um, kind of talked about Daniel chapter eight, but could you share with us a little bit of like, what was that like for you? Um, why in the world did you debate him? And uh, did anything transpire afterward or like any positive fruit that came from it? Yeah, great questions. Uh, we're going back to 1994, his first book that came out, which was 1994, question mark. And um, at that time, my colleague Ray Dillard and I were doing a prophecy conference weekend for churches, uh, which wasn't as popular as some prophecy conferences because our one of our points was, you know, you can't use this material to date when Christ is coming back again and, and so forth. So 
But, uh, but we had a lot of people who came to that uh, weekend seminar that we offered in various churches. So I was known to be interested in the question. We included Daniel in, in, that, um, in that seminar. So uh, what was unique about camping is that, um, you know, a lot of sort of end time predictions emanate out of a certain sector of the evangelical church, you know, the dispensationalist church. And at that time I was teaching at Westminster, it was reformed, uh, tends to be millennial. Not everybody is millennial there. And there's uh, very little kind of end time speculation that goes on there. But Harold Camping was in the Christian Reformed Church, an elder in the Christian Reformed Church. He was gaining a lot of popularity among people in, in our family of churches. So um, when I was asked to debate him at a big PCA church in Glasgow, Delaware, I accepted. I, I, I did it along with a man who's now the president of Westminster, a church historian named Peter Lilbeck. Uh, but it was a lot, I mean, it wasn't just on Daniel A. It was on, it, it was actually a 12 hour debate that spanned over like uh, evening and the next morning. And we had 1,500 people in attendance. And I, I kind of like to, well, it's not a total joke. I got the feeling right from the start that of the 1,500 people, 1,490 of them were on his side. And the only 10 that I could uh, count on as supporters for the 10 students I brought down. <laughs> so, but, um, but yeah, I thought it was important to debate him because he's a good example of someone who misuses apocalyptic literature to uh, do things that it was never intended to do, which is to devise a kind of apocalyptic timetable um, and to suggest that you can use this material, whether it's Daniel Revelation or the so-called apocalypses of the Gospels, you know, Mark 13 and its parallels, the signs of the time, to either pick a date, which is, um, um, you know, in his case, that's the approach he made, which always means you're both, because uh, he said Christ was coming back in September 1994, whereas others like Hal Lindsey, will say, oh, all the signs are there. I can't pick a particular date, but I can't imagine Christ not coming back uh, in the next few years or something because all the signs are there. And again, both those are misuses of the way God intended us to read apocalyptic literature. Yeah, good things I think came out of it. I, I started my debate with them by saying, um, I actually started by saying, uh, at that time, I had three teenage sons. So I said, uh, Mr. Camping, I have three teenage sons. No one wants Jesus to come back more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I said, uh, but here's why I think it's wrong to say he's coming back in September 94. Well, one of the good things, and I said, but, and one of the reasons why I want to debate you about this is because your followers who are investing themselves in this idea are going to experience tremendous disappointment, and the critics of your followers are going to, I want to speak to the critics of your followers, not to ridicule people who have brought, you know, have adopted your perspective, and um, because I've seen that before, you know, that um, that 
that when something like this happens, people who have bought into that idea get ridiculed and that causes them to withdraw in unhealthy ways. So um, I said, I want to give you something to think about in October. <laughs> well, yeah, what happened was, and I also warned them precisely what camping did. I said, look, if Christ doesn't come back in September, he'll start delaying it, you know. And indeed, I listened. He was on the radio every night. He owned family radio. So he would say things like, well, he didn't come back in September, but he'll come back by the end of the year. And then when he didn't come back by the end of the year, well, he didn't come back in this year, but the Jewish year ends in April. And then when April came, um, you know, I'm like the prophet Jonah. Jonah said 40 days and Nineveh will be spared. But he had already, and I'd warned them in his book, he said, if this doesn't work out, then 2011. And indeed, true to form, he came out uh, in 2010 and said it again and then when that didn't happen, he repented and died. I mean, he was a very old man by that time. He was in his 90s, I think. But yeah, and I also got at least one student come to Westminster, a very bright German guy, who uh, Martin Emmerich, who, uh, who came and studied with me and the others at Westminster and, and has, you know, he went on to get a doctorate. And, but he came precisely to study, he said to me at one point, because... You know, once he was sort of let down by camping, he thought he'd seek a better kind of interpretive approach, I guess. So that's a long explanation. Sorry, Skylar, you're bringing no. back memories. I that was really good. You know, and I'm I'm being honest. You you um when you wrote that um you you wrote about this in your your commentary, yeah. and um I was so curious, like how did things wrap up? You know, how what was that yeah. experience? Um, and you know, I had no idea. Did you say night? Uh, how many hours was that? Oh, I, I, it was, it was like, uh, it was a two day affair. I don't, it, you know, 1994, I don't remember, but it was a long, long session. I remember we had some Peter and I had some back stage conversations with him. And I remember asking him, I said, you know, you know, I was, you know, I tried to be civil and ironic. I didn't want to attack them. I usually find that if you just attack people and it doesn't help. But I said, essentially, some of the effect of what if you're wrong? And he goes, well, if I'm wrong, doesn't matter. At least people are considering the gospel. And I said, well, I remember back in the 70s when Hal Lindsey was doing his thing. And indeed, I, I have to say, I, I that was one of the things that God did use to bring me to the gospel, uh, and I would say now that Hal Lindsey, in his book, The Late Great Planet Earth, was totally wrong in his interpretation except for the major point. And the major point is, yes, Jesus is coming back again, and he is going to judge the wicked. And at that time, I knew I was on the wicked side. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, so that helped lead me to the Lord. But that, in my opinion, doesn't – because I, I had one friend who maxed out his credit card saying, I won't have to pay it back in September. And a friend whose wife left him, he was so obsessed with this idea. And, uh, and when the pastor and I as an elder went to him to tell him to seek reconciliation, he said, why should I bother crisis coming back in September? So that's why I was motivated to, to speak to the situation. Wow. That's heartbreaking. Uh, and yeah. it's heartbreaking to see that, I mean, those, those kind of actions 
uh, justified underneath the banner of the gospel, you know, because that's, that should never be the heart. Yeah. Um, well, Tremper, um, could you speak to um, that spirit of prediction that we see, I mean, uh, among many Christians? I mean, some people have, um, I hope nobody takes offense to this, but some people have gone nuts over this stuff. And yeah. I mean, I guess, I mean, you've kind of talked about this a little bit, but uh, is the Bible meant to be decoded like this so that we can know with precision um, how the events of the end times are going to go or when they're going to happen? Could you like to speak to this? this yeah, I, I sure would. Yeah. I, um, basically, when the Bible talks about the end times in books like Daniel and Revelation, uh, it does so using highly figurative language including um, symbolic numbers. Um, the, you know, as I said, I'm just finishing up a commentary on Revelation where, you know, seven and 12 and 10 are common, um, common numbers that aren't to be pressed literally, but have symbolic value of one sort or another. And the same thing's true in Daniel, and of course, we're going to be looking at this passage, which talks about, you know, 70 weeks, um, which again is a multiple of seven times 10, uh, which should immediately alert us to the fact that this isn't uh, intending to give us uh, sort of chronological information that we can plot on a, on a uh, map. And, and also, I would say that things we read about in Revelation, uh, which I do think Revelation is talking about both past events, present situation, but also future events. And, and Jesus, too, when he's talking to disciples after they comment on the stones of the temple, um, you know, these so-called signs of the time, wars and earthquakes, uh, these are all things that happen all the time. And, um, and they are signs of the time. They're the signs that were not yet at the consummation when Jesus is going to come back again and, and put all things right. So every time a war occurs, or even when a lot of wars, a lot of, like even now, you know, so of course with COVID and racial tension and other issues, uh, some people are thinking, is this are we in the end times uh, because of Revelation? And, and my answer is maybe, <laughs> maybe. I mean, we, we're called upon to always be ready, right? Uh, but you can't uh, surmise from those events that this is the time to come. But what you can say to yourself is, yeah, things are are broken still uh and lord come back and save us so so yeah so i'm i i think that's the best way well another thing and we'll probably get into this a little bit more later but when it comes to these symbolic numbers they 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 do serve uh important purposes and one of them is to show to to communicate to the reader without allowing the reader to plot it out on a calendar that God is in control. He will have the final victory. God knows when this is going to happen. So, and that there's a, you know, a 
there's a evil will not last forever. Uh, so it gives you that, um, that idea. Um, so yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so, okay. Um, let's go ahead and I guess, um, focus a little bit on Daniel chapter nine, the latter half verses 20 through 27. Um, for those, um, uh, I guess who, who may not be familiar with it, um, could you give us like the cliff notes version of what this passage is, uh, saying, um, I feel like every time I read it, I just, I get confused. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and I, there's a, there's a reason for that. It, it's, um, it's clear on the important points, but not so clear on, um, uh, specific points and, and, and even if you're reading in, in an English translation, you got to realize that uh, Hebrew scholars like myself, uh, well, in this case, yeah, Hebrew scholars like myself, and by the way, I'm, I am involved in translation, even though I'm going to be reading from the NIV, I, I was the senior translator uh, uh, on the central translation team for the New Living Translation. So I do a lot of translation work, and I know full well that um, that by the time uh, you know, there are a lot of interpretive issues that have to be decided before we even put it in English. So, um, so in any case, um, uh, Daniel chapter nine, uh, is fascinating for, for so many ways. Um, you know, the, it's a little different from all the other, um, uh, stories and visions in the book of Daniel in that, you know, the chapters one through um, chapters one through six are stories about Daniel in a foreign court. Uh, Daniel seven is this famous vision of four beasts coming out of, uh, you know, a chaotic sea uh, to be countered by the one like the son of man Riding the cloud, Daniel eight talks about uh, the conflict between Persia and Greece in the form of a couple battling animals, a goat and a ram, uh, and then Daniel ten to twelve, um, about twelve six is is uh, Daniel's final vision, which looks at kings of the north and kings of the south rising up, and uh, but Daniel chapter nine's a little bit different from all of those in that it is recording Daniel's intercessory prayer on behalf of the community. So uh, it starts out in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, Amid by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah, the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Okay, so, you know, this, this is fascinating that we have um, Daniel, you know, toward the end of the Old Testament period, actually reading a, uh, the, script, the book written by uh, a prophet, Jeremiah, of a relatively recent previous generation, and he's apparently reading a passage that we find in Jeremiah 25 and also Jeremiah 29 that does talk about 
um, you know, it's talking about Israel, uh, Judah, Jerusalem will be judged and 70 years later, um, they'll return. And this motivates Daniel to prayer because he's thinking we're near that time period. If, if um, you know, uh, Jeremiah prophesied between 626 and, and a little bit after 586 BC, uh, we don't know, ex I, I forget. Bottom line is, um, I'm sure Daniel was aware that this was a symbolic number. Again, it's seven times 10, but he might be motivated to pray because he's thinking that it's not exactly 70 years, but it's around that time. So he turns to God and he prays that God will, he, he, he confesses sin. And what's interesting about that is, you know, Daniel didn't participate in the sin himself as you know, that, that led to the exile, but he's, he's, even though he's, um, not personally responsible, he understands that he's part of the community. So, which is interesting for modern ethics, by the way, as we think about things like racial injustice. And if somebody says, well, I've never victimized anybody, but I'm not going to be held responsible for what white people did, you know, uh, before the Civil War. That's a pretty, because uh, I, you know, can't go into that. <laughs> uh, though I did write another book that also just came out this year called The Bible and the Ballot Using Scripture and Political Decisions, where I do get into those kind of issues. But, um, but it's in response to this intercessory prayer or this prayer of confession that we read in verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, making my request to the Lord my God for, for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. So the angels, we're learning more and more about angels at the end of the Old Testament time period and then into the intertestamental time period, the New Testament. And we'll meet Gabriel again, of course, in the New Testament. Gabriel, and they, they seem to have specific functions. And Gabriel's function is kind of like divine spokesperson. So he comes and says... Um, Gabriel instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. Soon as you begin to pray, pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the holy place. So one of the clear things that's happening here is that Gabriel is saying, not so fast. <laughs> it's not over yet. Um, and, uh, and, 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 um, and because, you know, he's, he's actually praying this prayer in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes. And he, so they've already, Cyrus has already issued his decree that allows the, um, uh, Israelite elite, who are the ones who were deported to return to the land. So um, Daniel is asking, for, but, but Daniel also knows that the return of people like Zerubbabel and Sheshbazar in 539, and then later Ezra and Nehemiah is 
is is is yeah an answer to prayer but it's not bringing in eternal righteousness which is a term that we'll run into um in just a moment so um so it's saying 77s are decreed for your people so not 70 but 77s there's a sense in which the exile continues beyond the return from Babylon. They, they don't have an independent kingdom. Uh, their Messiah hasn't come. Uh, you know, there's a lot of issues and problems within Jerusalem at the time. So um, then it goes, know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens will be rebuilt with streets, a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come to destroy the city and the sanctuary, the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So again, what I would say is clear here is the sense of God is in control. He knows the times. Um, and things will work out according to his purposes. And that's to give the reader a sense of assurance and comfort. Mm. But it's not the type of thing you can take and, and put on a calendar, even in historical retrospect. And that's why we have, so for people who think that this is, you're able to plot out a certain calendar from this, that's why we have so many different opinions about it. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. Um... Well, that's fun. That's, that's fun to have you read this and then kind of just make um, comments as, you know, as we go and just kind of explain things. So um, you said there's, there's, a, um, there's a variety of views um, out there. I think there's probably as many views as there are probably verses in the book of Daniel. Um, what are some of the, I guess, common views that you see um, on a passage like this? Right. Yeah. So... Um, among many conservative Christians, they think that this is kind of plotting out to, to anticipate the first and the second coming of Christ. Okay. okay. So, um, so, but there's a lot of difficulty in terms of even knowing where, when this if you go, if you think it's a calendar and you think it's pointing to Christ coming, and and you might be led to think that because of the use anointed one in here, um, though Christ isn't the only potential uh, person who might be an anointed one. Anointed one was used for prophets, priests, and kings. Um, so one of the first questions is when is it in verse 25 from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be 
seven sevens and 62 sevens. And one question is, and this actually, there's uh, two different Greek traditions. Um, there's, well, there, well, sorry, there's the Masoretic text and then there's a Greek manuscript called Theodotion. Theodotion puts the seven sevens together with the 62 sevens. But at, in terms of then at the end of, um, you know, 69 sevens, the anointed one comes and that's Christ. But when do you start it? Um, in, in one sense, one natural reading is that the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem would be at the time Nehemiah goes back to rebuild the wall. And that's 445. BC. The problem is that is that you, and, and while I'm describing this view, just notice how many, how, how many qualifications you have to make. So I think you might end up at 39 AD, but we know that Christ was, uh, died before 39 BC, more probably some, but we don't even know ex with great precision what exact year Christ died, but it'd be more like 30 to 32 uh, maybe even a little bit earlier. So people have recourse to the idea that these aren't regular years, they're prophetic years. Prophetic years have 360 days and then not 365 days. And they then they use that to work it down. Uh, but there's no reason to think that there's anything but a regular year in mind here. Um, Another option that actually works better with the death of Christ is to start it not with Nehemiah, but with Ezra. But the problem with that is, you know, Ezra's going back to reestablish the law, not to do anything about, you know, rebuilding the city. And many people think the most natural uh, referent or antecedent to the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem is actually to go back to Jeremiah. Oh. And to, and then... And then to, to say that the first anointed one comes not at the end of 69 weeks, but the end of the first seven. That's one legitimate and probably better reading of the Hebrew. And, uh, and what that would mean is that the end of the first seven is um, around the time of the initial return from Babylonian captivity. So then the anointed one would be somebody like Zerubbabel, who was the Jewish leader who was instrumental in rebuilding the temple. Okay. Uh, or, it's, or it's Joshua, the high priest, who associated him. Or some people, and this is an interesting idea, think it's Cyrus, you know, the one who whom God used to allow the Jews to go back because in Isaiah 45, he's actually called them Mashiach, the anointed one. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> so, um, so again, look at all the options you have uh, to uh, build this in. And then um, some people then would take the 62 sevens uh, as a separate category that the time period Cyrus, and that would take you down to the second, mid-2nd century BC, uh, around the time of a particularly egregious Greek ruler who was persecuting the Jews called Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And in that case, the anointed one 
being cut off or put to death would be a reference to a high priest named Onias III, um, who, who was forcibly removed, I think murdered. Um, and then that view would continue to say the people, the ruler will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue the end and desolations have been decreed. You will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, you will put an end to sacrifice and offering. Well, this Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, who was this Greek ruler who uh, dominated Jerusalem at the time, we know historically did put an end to sacrifice in the temple. He did set up a, uh, a meteorite that was considered to be holy to Zeus and the holy of holies of the temple that was called the abomination of desolation. And then, and then it goes, um, um, and at the temple, he was set up an abomination that caused desolation until the end that his decree is poured out on him. So this, this accretion that Antiochus Epiphany perpetrated lasted about three and a half years. And wow. then he died. So, so that's one view. Now, one view, that view is sometimes connected with the idea that this isn't prophecy, that actually the author of Daniel 9 lived around the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, which is not a view that I accept. I, I do think this is looking forward to the future, that God is able to point to the future. And if that view were right, and I'm not convinced it is, um, I think at that point, uh, something that my friend John Golden Gay said um, is really relevant. Uh, John Golden Gay, as you know, Skylar wrote a, a good commentary on, um, on Daniel as well. Uh, has some disagreements with it, partly connected to the idea that he does think that Daniel was written in the second century BC. Um, and we've had some good interaction on that issue. But I think he's right to say, taking the view that he does, and I'm quoting him here, he goes, if I'm justified in believing that Jesus is God's anointed and that his birth, ministry, death, resurrection, and appearing are God's ultimate means of revealing himself and achieving his purpose in the world, they are also his means of ultimately achieving what the symbols of verses 24 to 27 are saying. So what he's saying, and this is true of a lot of Old Testament prophecy. It may have a near-term referent, but it often has further ramifications and are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And so, and so he's saying that not by way of direct prediction, but by way of sort of typological analogy, um, the use of it in the New Testament um, by Jesus anticipating future end time kind of um, um, end time uh, prophecy is is good and justified authentic and all that so cool yeah they they kind of uh i guess there's like layers you know right um, right right like right so yeah. and it's almost like in my head i i, I kind of thought about this whole um 
for it to point to Jesus, it doesn't, ne- I mean, for it to, I guess, um, theologically matter for Jesus, it doesn't necessarily have to point to Jesus because Jesus clearly like applies things yes. um, to help us understand his significance. And I mean, right. it's kind of like a play, you know, you, you can, you, you know, the play writer writes a play and it's, um, uh, it's, it's magnificent. And then you, you see things, you know, it just gets reapplied. Um, yeah. Right. As it's, mm-hmm. as it's done. And it, it doesn't mean those are less, any less significant, you know? And, right. Um, I, I don't know if that. No, it's helpful. Sense. It's helpful. Well, I mean, let's take what might be a, another controversial example. The Virgin will have a child named Emmanuel. I mean, if you go back and read that, what's not controversial is that Isaiah is talking about something that's going to happen like in the next 10 years. All right. Because Go back and read the context. King Ahab's anxious because the two kings to the north, namely the king of the northern kingdom, a guy named Pekah, and the king of Syria, a guy named Rezin, are threatening him because Ahab's unwilling to go in on a coalition against Tiglath-Pileser. And Isaiah's coming to him and saying, don't cave. Uh, don't join their coalition, don't go and support Tiglath-Pileser, but rather be obedient to God. And then he says, I'm going to give you a sign. And Ahab says, I don't want a sign. And Isaiah gets very mad at him and says, no, you're wicked because you don't want a sign. Because uh, prophets accompany their, their messages with signs. And, he's, and that's when he says, a, well, truth be told, if the translation is a young woman will have a child. And by the time that child grows old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, those two smoking firebrands, namely Pekka and Resin, will be gone. But, um, but through the vehicle of the Greek translation, which translates that Hebrew word, which means young woman, maybe implying virginity, though there's another very... Uh, well-known word that means specifically virgin that could have been used there. Um, so young, young unmarried woman is what that Hebrew word means. Uh, but so the idea assuming is that that woman would have got married and haven't had a child, but in an intensified kind of application of it, it goes beyond that near term fulfillment to the virgin birth of Christ. So, uh, so it's that idea of prophecies in the Old Testament have near-term fulfillments, but then also uh, more intense ultimate fulfillments in Christ. Awesome, awesome. Well, man, that's fun. <laughs> um, so, okay. Um, you know, there's a lot that's clear and unclear with this um, with this passage here in Daniel. Um, in your, I guess, in your writing, one of the things that you kind of uh, come back to is a need to have caution. Um, can you talk yeah. a little bit about yeah. why yeah. that's important? Yeah, yeah, and and maybe just one more word about what's clear, if uh, if you don't mind, and that yeah. is uh, because I want to. I want to cite what theologians call the perspicuity of Scripture. Now, theologians rightly say Scripture is perspicuous, and that's just a fancy word which means clear. Um, 
but what do they mean by that term? And I, you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith is a classic reformed uh, confession that defines perspicuity by saying, not all things are alike clear enough themselves, but those things that are essential for salvation are taught so, so clearly and so often that anybody by, you know, normal means of reading will understand them. So it's interesting that the statement on perspicuity starts out with the idea of, um, of not all things are clear enough themselves, but what's what the important points are. And, and that's why we have to exert caution. We have to exert caution. On the one hand, we can be confident that those things that are clear are, uh, are clear, but then the other things um, and there are a lot of things that are not clear in this passage. We, we just have to approach those more humbly and also with great respect and tolerance for people who may hold other views than we do on such a topic. Sure. So what's clear here is that, again, um, it's communicating that God's in control. He'll have the final victory. Evil may look like it's in control, but there's a definite ending to that. It's also calling, I think, uh, God's people to repentance, a confessing of sins. I mean, um, we got these uh, six things, a finishing of transgression, the end of sin, the atonement of the wicked, are the kind of negative pull of these six items that are going to happen over this time period. But then the bringing in of everlasting righteousness, the sealing up of vision and prophecy, by which I think it means the fulfillment of it, and the anointing of the most holy. And, and basically, in working on the book of Revelation now, I would say that all those things are going to happen with the second coming of Christ. Hmm. So I think ultimately this, this text is looking forward to the second coming of Christ. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. Um, there's so much there. I'm going to be thinking about that for a little while. Um, so who am I, Scott? What's that? I said, I, I, I'm going to continue thinking about it too. <laughs> oh, man, that's good. Um, so, okay. If, uh, what, I mean, what would you say, um, what should be different about believers as a result of like reading this passage? Like, is there, is there a, I guess to say it another way is, is there one or two key things that we can take away and apply to ourselves? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think what the passage is intending to do is to comfort believers in the midst of difficulties. And, uh, and that doesn't mean necessarily special difficulties. All Christians who live in the world are living in context that are to different degrees toxic or even hostile to the faith, you know? So we kid ourselves if we think we will ever live in a time when we're not beset by troubles or evil or whatever um, in this life. But there's a passage like this, is, and we struggle with our own sin as well. A passage like this is supposed to and apocalyptic literature in general is supposed to encourage people like us that we have a wonderful hope to look forward to. Um, yeah, so um, 
So I, I think that's the main message that we should get from it. Awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, we have, we have a hope that transcends our circumstances yes, and right. that, you know, in the end, uh, evil does not win. Right. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. God does. Amen. So, Amen, Skyler. Um, wow. Uh, Tremper Longman, this has been fantastic. I am, uh, I'm so glad that, um, you let me interview you on, uh, this really, um, complex and, um, mildly controversial passage, uh, <laughs> in the Old Testament. Um, so it's been an honor to uh, interview you and have you on our podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure and privilege, Skylar. Thanks. Nice to meet you. It's good to meet you. What an honor that was. I mean, there was so much packed into that short window of time. But how cool was that? I mean, here's a guy who translates the Hebrew Bible uh into English, unpacking one of the most confusing and conflicting passages in the Old Testament. And if I understood him correctly, one of the main reasons a passage like this is so confusing is because we try to understand it in a way that it was never meant to be understood. And if I understand him correctly, one of the main reasons a passage like this is so confusing is because we try to understand it in a way that it was never intended to be understood. Which is a great relief to me because I've struggled understanding this very passage. If you would like to dive deeper into this topic, he has written some very helpful resources uh, that I'll link in the show notes, but I would highly recommend and highlight one book that he just recently wrote uh, called How to Read Daniel. Next week, we're going to do part two on apocalyptic literature. Uh, after my interview with Shane Wood, uh, he has sent me on a quest with a whole lot of questions that I have wanted answers to that kind of were raised into my mind. And so next week is going to be part two of My Strange Bible as I unpack this odd literature in the Bible that we call apocalyptic. And some of the fascinating things that I have found in my own research, and maybe these are questions that you yourselves had after that interview. One of the ways to ensure that you don't miss that interview is to subscribe to our podcast and, and whenever they air, you'll be the first to be notified and be able to listen to them. And while you're subscribing, do us a favor and ra leave a rating and a review on our podcast. This helps get interviews like this in front of more people. Well, I hope that this conversation has helped you in your life so that you can make a greater impact in your life. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week as we talk about my strange life.